This is an ABC podcast. A humpback whale singing off the eastern coast of Australia. Amazing, isn't it? On RN, welcome to Soul Search. I'm Meredith Lake, and today, stories from the sea. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The biblical story of Jonah includes the world's most famous giant fish. But stories of sea monsters, unruly oceans, massive floods, these are widespread in many of the world's religious and mythological traditions. A bit later on, Dr Tamara Prozik from Monash University will talk us through some of these stories, from ancient Mesopotamia to the Bible to Moby Dick. First, though, as some churches mark Sea Sunday this week, we turn to the ocean as a place of work and ministry. Deacon Patrick Moore is a chaplain to the maritime workers who pass through Western Australia's Fremantle Port. In the inner harbour, we see a variety of ships. We see bulk carriers, container ships, big car carriers, and for most of the year, livestock ships stopped at the moment because they don't uh, carry sheep to the Middle East during uh, these months. When we get to the ship, yeah, the, the crews are, are varied. About half the crews would come from the Philippines. Then there's lots of Chinese guys, um, Indians, and often the officers come from Ukraine or Russia. And these are very so, busy places, aren't they? Is it a lot of ships going in and out of Fremantle? Uh, we get about 2,000 ships a year. Wow. So it's not the busiest port by any means. The busiest port in Australia is Port Hedland by a long way. Then probably Sydney, Sydney and Melbourne, yeah. But you mentioned motor vehicles coming in, livestock, grain, petrol, fertilisers, coal, all of that kind of comes through yep. Fremantle as Oil. well, doesn't it? And I guess nearly everything we buy uh, or use even has probably been loaded and unloaded by a shipping worker. Yeah, I often worker. say if, I, if I'm doing an appeal in a church for funding, you know, I say to people, every car you drove in this morning to come to church came to you on a ship through Fremantle Port. Most of our white goods come to us on ships. Much of our clothing now comes from overseas. I think we owe a huge debt of gratitude to the seafarers and they support our lifestyle and they're largely forgotten. You know, we never think of those things, you know, who brought it here and under what conditions were they living while they, while they brought the goods to us. Well, the people who do that work and the conditions under which they live, I mean, that's your, your bread and butter ministry these days. Can you tell that's me right. a yeah. little bit more about what an, an ordinary seaman's life would be like today? I sort of paint a picture. If a, uh, a man in the Philippines wants to take up you know, life as a seafarer, and many, many do, because there's not much work in the Philippines, 
he gets some training and then he goes to a manning agent. He'll get taken on and he'll be flown out to a ship. So say he's flown to Singapore. He goes to join a crew. There'll be 21 other men on the ship, none of whom he's met before. And he's on there for the next eight to 10 months. That's a really long time, uh, eight to 10 months on one, right. on one job. Yeah, and it's worse than that at the moment because of the pandemic. When the men get to the end of their contracts and they should be flown home, they can't go because there's no flights. So many of them now are just being asked to they go month by month extending their contracts. So, and they're not allowed off the ships at all at the moment, anywhere. So, so when they're in port, our, they're not even allowed to get off the ship? Not at the moment. For quarantine because reasons. Of, because our borders are closed, the men can't come off the ship. So terrible for them. They live in very cramped conditions on the ship. Some, some ships are much better than others. Um, the, each man would have his own little cabin. And then they share the mess room, which is very small. And that's your total world, really, for eight months. And they eat and spend time together in there. Now, that experience could be quite good. I mean, the men could find friends on board. But if they're bullied, uh, life could be appalling. Men still suffer from seasickness, loneliness, um, homesickness, constant noise and vibration, boredom, same thing every day. And many suffer from uh, depression. You know, the, the men miss their, they miss their families, they miss their wife, their children. That's why usually, before the pandemic, they're always very keen to come off. And the first thing they want to do is to contact their families, because most of them don't have access to the internet on board the ship. Uh, unless it's an extreme emergency, they, they're not allowed to use it. Is that so? Some ships now, uh, they do have access, uh, like the BP tankers i think the day will come when it, because internet's getting much cheaper it will come when they can you know be able to talk to their wives and family every day i suppose in addition to that profound challenge of separation and loneliness there must also be i guess the ordinary the ordinary challenges of sickness perhaps of injury are these That's very right. dangerous jobs, or do you see much of that? They're very kind? dangerous jobs, yeah. They're very, I mean, if you fall over on a ship, everything is hard. You know, you fall against a, a, a steel, something steel poking out somewhere. So like, they, men fall over, they often break limbs, and men often fall into the holds. And how do these issues actually surface in your ministry, in your experience? Any fellow who's brought ashore and hospitalised, I uh, usually get a, an email from AMSA, that's the Maritime Safety Authority. Then I follow that up. So if, if it's in Fremantle, obviously, I, I go to the hospital and find the man and see what if we can do anything to help them. Sometimes, I mean, they might only be in, in hospital a short time, but some I've had, you know, one fellow was in hospital here for about four months. So I saw him every day while he was in hospital because he had no one here. It's so, you know, when they first come ashore, uh, it must be very frightening if your English isn't that uh, brilliant and the ship has gone and you're left behind. You know, it's quite a scary moment. So um, I have some, I've, a few Filipinas work for me. So if it's a Filipino, I usually get uh, 
a local Filipino person to go and regularly visit uh, and then phone and report on the man to to his wife and family in the Philippines. Tell so me I'd more. Say most of the work is pastoral, really, trying to do with Jesus, what Jesus told us, you know, and uh, welcome the stranger. Deacon Moore, I'd love to hear more about the ministry that you do and particularly that theological rationale for it. You've mentioned Stella Maris. Um, it's also known as the Apostleship of the Sea, which has centres, I think, in more than 300 ports around the world, including nearly That's a dozen right. here in Australia. Yeah, we have centres in uh, Fremantle, Albany, Adelaide, Melbourne. A few in North Sydney. Queensland too, in Townsville yeah, and, and Mackay. Mackay. Yeah, in Brisbane. Launceston yeah. too, I think. Yeah, Bell Bay, yeah. I guess there was a time, and this is a bit of a stereotype, but when sailors or seafarers were widely seen as, you know, a bit naughty or a bit rowdy when they came ashore. If you learnt one song about that as a kid, it was, you know, what do you do with a drunken sailor? Yeah. What should we do with a drunken sailor? What should we do with a drunken sailor? And there was that... It's a bit of a myth. Yes, sure. <laughs> I find well, most of them are sort of youngish family men, and um, most of them don't drink, in my experience. I mean, I've been uh, running the centre for 14 years, so I've seen quite a lot of them. Only twice, I think, in that time have I had a fellow who was a bit tipsy. Well, that's a very big myth then. But I guess mm. in terms of ministry to seafarers, in the 19th century, I suspect the perceived need in keeping with that myth was often for a bit of, you know, moral seriousness, to provide access to church services, persuading sailors to attend, a kind of moral reformist edge as well That's as a right. pastoral and much, spiritual one. Much more that. And, yeah, the chaplain would go on board with an armful of Bibles. So it started by with Bible study stuff, and they'd try to organise Bible study groups on board the ships. That doesn't happen in Australia. Uh, well, it doesn't happen with the Apostleship of the Sea anywhere around the world. We don't do that. Well, tell me um, what you do do. What, what? Well, we only we we respond if if I'm asked to do a service or bless the ship or, or you know, well, then I would do so, do something for them. But otherwise, no, we I don't I don't even normally don't even offer. Sometimes the men will come ashore and ask for prayer books. Um, or they ask for prayers for someone at home who's sick or something like that. Some I've had Muslims come in the centre and ask if we have a prayer room, so I make a room available for them so they can do their prayer. I feel that my responsibility is just as strong towards uh, Muslims and people of other faiths, that their spiritual uh, life is nourished just as much as uh, other Christians. Can you tell me then if there is a typical day at the Fremantle Stella Maris Centre, what it might look like for you and your volunteers? Yeah, in the morning we check uh, what ships are in the harbour, work out which ones we what we can visit, what, what we're going to go and visit. Uh, and I would visit some ships, spend a little time on board. Usually when you go on board, uh, most of the men are working. So often there's only one or two to speak to. Usually the cook is a good person because he knows everything that's going on on the ship, sometimes more than the captain, <laughs> about how the men are. Sure. And he's, he's, he's good to spread the word. And then I say, you know, tell the men when they're ready, if they want to come ashore, this, you know, phone us, we'll come and collect them. 
then later in the day we might we'd get phone calls from the ships and we go to the ship pick up the men bring them into the center they usually come into the center change money uh, you know buy some australian dollars then they go off do their shopping um, they do their shopping, then come back, and then they might uh, recharge their SIM card and get on the, or get on the Wi-Fi, and just sit around in the centre, really talking to their families. Sometimes they get excited if there's a new baby at home, and I've uh, more than once been uh, asked, you know, sir, sir, father, come and have a look, see my new baby. It's lovely those moments. You said before that one of the core ideas animating this ministry is one of hospitality or welcoming. That's right. The men, when they come into the centre, I hope they just feel it's they're at home. Sure. But can you tell me a bit more about how that impulse comes out of your own faith and faith tradition? Like, why is this part of your own... I mean, why is this a ministry of the church, for instance? Can you just spell that out a little more? <clears throat> Uh, yeah, well, I think uh, one of Jesus' uh, most common messages was to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger. So these people are disadvantaged, so we try to offer assistance to them. It's as simple as that, really. As I say, when the, when the ministry started off, uh, this sort of ministry uh, over 100 years ago, was very much more focused on Bible study and things like that. Uh, but that's fallen away, and now we're ju- people are just concerned about the sort of mental welfare of the men, mm. the spiritual welfare. I think it comes directly from the gospel, really, is what, to, what Jesus asks us to do. Patrick Moore, a Catholic chaplain at the Stellamara Centre for Seafarers in Fremantle reflecting on many years attending to the needs and well-being of shipping workers like these two. Tomasito and Dominador are Filipino sailors who spoke to the ABC's Kerry Stewart back in 2008. I am uh, Tomasito S. Ruben. I am uh, Adoro Roque. We are Siemens from the... Uh, Philippines and working on a uh, German container vessel. We uh, are already on the uh, Australian waters since last night, but uh, we come in only this uh, morning at 3 o'clock in the morning. And now we are here at the Siemens Club, Siemens Club to call our families and also unwind ourselves. That's right. So people from the Siemens Club take us downtown on the bus. On average, how long do you spend in port? We are grateful. If we stay 16 hours at least, we have some four hours on shore, if there is no too much job. Like here, they have the transportation. It really matters for us. It's very difficult to move from ship to the city. The port is very strict. Is there more security now than there used to be? Yeah, since this... Uh, September 11, the security become very strict. Are you religious? Are you Christian? Basically, yes. <laughs> yes, I am religious. In every day, I always call uh, Jesus to be on my side. 
Are there any facilities on the ship for your practicing of your religion? No, only by your own faith. That's why we used to come to the Shaman Center sometimes if you want to attend the mass. How long are you at sea in one stretch? Yeah, we have different contracts. As for me as an officer, I have a six months contracts. Um, eight months contract. It's quite long for us, but uh, it's the only way we can uh, make substantial uh, support for our family. Why did you choose to go to the sea? Was it just to provide for your families? Or did you have an attraction to being a seaman? For us, we were attracted with the uh, dollar, of course. Yeah. The what, sorry? This uh, dollar currency. The, we call it the green money. Yeah. <laughs> because you see, uh, if you compare the uh, salary working in the Philippines from working on a foreign vessel, it's far, far behind. Yeah, yeah that's right. And you about our life is difficult, yes, but it is more difficult on the part of our wife who is stay behind or looking for a child. You know, so... I always call my wife to ask her what is the problem at home because, as you say, we are always away from them. I was able to send my uh, nephews and sons to a good school because of this seafaring uh, jobs, which uh, I'm very happy. Although a little bit uh, more sacrifice, but uh, it's quite good to my family. Sailors Tomasito and Dominador speaking to RN's Encounter program back in 2008. And if you'd like to hear the rest of that episode, you'll find a link on the Soul Search website in the program notes for today. Via podcast and broadcast, this is Soul Search on RN. My name's Meredith, which means, by the way, Lord of the Sea. And the sea happens to be our theme today. I'm speaking with Patrick Moore, a permanent deacon in the Catholic Archdiocese of Perth. That means he's ordained, but not a priest. He has some different roles and responsibilities. In Patrick's case, that's chaplaincy to the sailors who come through Fremantle Port. Did you have much to do with seafaring before you took on this role? Really? Nothing. Just before my ordination, I just got asked by the Archbishop if on ordination I would take on uh, Stella Maris which at that stage in Fremantle had been closed down for nearly two years, if I would uh, get it started again and, uh, you know, restore the service. So I said yes. Were there early experiences or impressions you had on that early learning curve that you think have stayed with you or shaped how you approach this particular ministry to seafarers? Yes, in the first few months I was there, there was a dreadful accident on board a ship and a man had a terrible fall and broke, uh, 
fractured his skull and many other bones in his body. Uh, and he was in the ICU at Royal Perth. I went to see him, and he didn't come round for about eight, ten days, I think. But I went every day. I went in the morning and just sat by his bed and prayed for him, speaking out loud in case he could hear. And then I'd go after work in the evening and stay there another hour. Yeah, and on the eighth day, I was talking to him, and suddenly his eyes opened. I thought it was like a miracle. Because they had removed the top of his skull, so he looked rather strange. He had this bandage across with a big writing on it saying, no bone. But then I saw him every day then for the next four months till he could walk again and could be repatriated. Got his mother, helped get his mother and his brother out from the Philippines to be with him while he was in Perth. But I really felt uh, useful. You know, it gave me a good feeling. Hmm. And it did struck home to me, too, how hard the life of these seafarers is. You know, when I first went, I remember getting to the ICU at Royal Perth, and the nurse said to me, you know, don't let, you know, they don't let anyone in there. She said to me, are you family? I said, well, no, <laughs> not in the sense you mean, because you'd have no family in Australia. I said, I'm as close as a family is going to get. So anyway, they let me in. So, yeah. yeah, and I did get quite close to him. So I still get occasional emails from his mum, <laughs> sort of all these years later. Over the 13 or 14 years you've been there now, how has the needs of that community changed? Has your ministry had to respond, say, to, to developments in shipping? Yeah, not so much developments in shipping as developments in technology. Because when they first came, uh, when I first was appointed, we had fixed phones, you know, with coins. And the men queued up to use our telephones. Then that stopped and there were more use of the internet. I, I got a grant and had a lot of computers. And the men would queue up to use the computers and go on there. But now most of them have uh, Skype on their phone. So most of them have smartphones. And, and we use Wi-Fi. So... Um, I got rid of all the telephones. I've had them all taken out. They've gone. I got rid of most of the computers. So that's changed. It'll change again when the men get better access to internet on board the ships. And the question would be, why would they need to come to Stellaris or in any seafaring centre? What would they come for? And what do you think the answer to that might be? Like, what will the pastoral needs? Well, I think they, they still need to get off the ship, just need a change of environment. They still need other people to talk to. You know, when you're on board the ship, you're locked up with the same men for all those months. Everyone knows your story. Everyone knows your jokes. Everyone knows all about your family. There's nothing new. And they just love it, you know, when you see... it's. When I first started visiting ships, I thought, oh, you've got a lovely welcome, you know. And I thought, well, I must have a nice warm personality or something, but it's nothing to do with that. It's just the men are desperate to talk to someone else, I think. Patrick, I wonder how this ministry might have impacted your own faith, your own spiritual journey. I wonder if it's brought new things to the foreground for you or perhaps even changed the way you understand a story like... I don't know, Jesus calming the sea or that parable in Matthew that you referenced about tending to the hungry and to the to the needy. Yeah. 
What do you think, how would you distill its role, this ministry, and its role in your own spiritual walk? I think from the moment of ordination, when you feel the Archbishop's hands on your head, um, it's quite a powerful moment. And uh, there's a feeling then of responsibility to not let the side down, shall we say, you know, to live a better life, to be truer to the gospel. When you, when you work with other people of faith, uh, it really does affirm one's, your, your own faith, I think. Just seeing the, uh, the loyalty of some of these men, all whose lives are so terrible, often so bad, how firm they are still in their own faith is very affirming to, for, for me. You know, it helps me. Hmm. Finally, Deacon, both Protestants and Catholics will mark Sea Sunday on the 12th of July this year, which is a yeah. time for special attention to the needs of seafarers and also to the ministries that go on among them, such as your own. What will you be thinking about or praying for on Sea Sunday this year? Uh, this year I'll be praying especially for an end to the pandemic. So the men, you know, we can get back to normal and the men can get back to more normal lives and, you know, at least get to enjoy some time off the ships. That's the, the most urgent thing for them, that the pandemic be over. Patrick Moore is director of the Stella Maris Centre for Seafarers in Fremantle. If you'd like to know more about that work or about Sea Sunday, you'll find some information on the Soul Search program page. Well, the sea looms large in human culture and imagination. Before people had writing, we had stories about the sea that in some cases are still known and told today. Dr. Tamara Prozik is an expert on the mythology of ancient West Asia, including the Babylonian creation epic Enuma Elish. I hadn't heard of it either, but boy, it's fascinating. Before the beginning of the world, there was Tiamat, a saltwater god. Apsu was a freshwater spirit, and their child, Marduk, becomes supreme over everything. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. I'll let Tamara take us into the watery world of Mesopotamian myth. Mesopotamia, the name itself, comes from Greek, and it actually means between two rivers. So what we are talking about is Tigris and Euphrates. And the civilization that first developed there was uh, the Sumerian civilization, and that was five or six thousand years before Common Era. So this is where we encounter the sea for the first time. In this case, the sea is not an unruly, unorderly power. It is more like the creative principle from which then everything else emerges. So, yeah, what kind of stories do we have from the Sumerians about the sea? Is there much of a trace of the stories Sumerians told? Well, the Sumerians then left their heritage to the Babylonians who came after them. 
And the, in the Babylonian, uh, the so-called Enuma Elish, that is where we encounter two elements. One is the freshwater, Apsu, and then you have the salty waters or the bitter waters, which is Tiamat. Apsu is the male principle, Tiamat is the female principle. Uh, they mix, and from there, the process of creation of the world starts. The Enuma Elish that you mentioned, this is the great Babylonian creation epic yes. that I think has survived on a series of tablets in cuneiform. Well, but we have it from various um, libraries that were dug out at some stage, and there are actually many versions of the story. First of all, it's a Babylonian story, so there is a lot of talk about Marduk, who is a supreme god of Babylon. And this is, is a story, isn't it, that really emerged from the Babylonian ascendancy in Mesopotamia that almost justifies the rise and centrality of Babylon, not just as an imperial city, but a religious city. But are you suggesting that some trace, in a sense, of the older Sumerian stories about creation somehow filter in? Yes, yes, because Babylon took over many stories of the Sumerians. How mythology works and how the creation of myths works in general is that people take over those stories because they matter to them, but they also change them slightly in the process because they have to adjust them to their own environment, to their own experiences and so on. But certain elements remain. Now, the interesting part about the Babylonian version is that you have these fresh and bitter waters. And that is a reflection of where Babylon was and where the Babylonian civilization developed. And that is, you know, in the delta of Tigris and Euphrates. And that is where you have this mixing of fresh waters, fresh river waters, and bitter, salty, salty waters. Fascinating. Wow. So tell me a bit more about the story of Tiamat and Apsu in this Enuma Elish. Can you talk me it, through the narrative? Well, the narrative starts with Apsu and Tiamat. So there was the fresh water, the male principle, and the salty water, Tiamat. So they mixed and then produced the next generation of gods. And at some stage, uh, those younger gods were very unruly. Apsu gets upset by their noise and, you know, gods. The ancient gods are really... Well, they sound uh, like parents to me. <laughs> but they are much harsher, I think, than normal parents. <laughs> so Apsu decides to kill them. These younger gods hear about this, learn about this, and they actually then kill Apsu. That enrages his consort, Tiamat, the bitter waters, and now the battle between uh, Tiamat and these younger gods led by Marduk starts. 
what I find uh, really fascinating about this is that when you think about the about Mesopotamia as a region, and when you think about the Babylonians, they were the first to introduce some kind of regulation when it comes to these rivers, because they were the first to introduce the channels and irrigation and things like that. So for me, this story somehow symbolizes first killing the the unruly fresh waters, which in my translation means they managed to order those fresh waters, and that is your irrigation. And then uh, when it comes to the battle with Tiamat, that is now something that is more uh, where they can't really just kill Tiamat outright, but it's a great battle very big battle and Tiamat uh, in representations from Babylon, you see that Tiamat is completely unordered force. So and when you think about those ideas being attached to salty water, to the sea, to the ocean, I guess we do get this very early image of something chaotic, threatening, yes. something that has the potential to disrupt a settled community which is obviously dependent on fresh water. And it's interesting that that's associated with the feminine. I mean, these are deep, deep assumptions and ideas, aren't they? Well, if you accept that people start to think or order the world according to some binaries, uh, then we have this culture-nature binary. And women in ancient cultures were always closer to nature than to culture. They are always associated somehow with unruliness. But also with fertility, with uh, something generative, uh, something essential in the sense of um, creativity uh, and, and I guess with the origins of life in a sense. There's that aspect here too, isn't there? No, oh, by all means. I mean, women were always the paradigm of fertility, and certainly goddesses, all the great mothers, uh, represent that. Tiamat can be called the great mother because uh, once she's killed Marduk, actually, then from her body creates the world. So yeah, so people- what happens to poor Tiamat? Oh, she she gets, uh, Marduk kills Tiamat and then he slices her and from her body he creates the sky, he creates the stars, he creates many other things. So Tiamat at the end gets transformed into the world. So... In that sense, the sea is both unruly, unordered force, but it's also something that can be transformed, something that frames the world. Tamara, another idea that's associated with the sea in some of these ancient myths is that of a flood that might overrun a place and its people. And those stories, too, have a very ancient root. And people might have heard of Gilgamesh, for example, perhaps the most famous of the Babylonian heroes. Tell me about the flood stories that emerge from this same area of the world. 
The flood story is a very old story, and it comes in several versions. There is a Sumerian version that's called Atrahasis. Then you have the Babylonian versions. There are a couple of them. And then that moves to Israel. It moves also to Greece. We have in Greece a flood story. So very common story. And it's no, you know, people usually think that there is some uh, truth about the flood story. And yes, there is truth because all the big civilizations developed along big rivers and the flood stories are very, very common because every civilization, I suppose, experienced flood at one stage or another. You know, that that is also true of this continent. There are very, very old stories from around the rim of Australia connected to a whole range of Indigenous communities and their oral traditions from, you know, the Spencer Gulf to the Great Barrier Reef to the Gulf of Carpentaria that talk about, well, rising seas, the transformation of dry land into islands, lagoons being permanently flooded with water, the submergence of known sites, the reshaping of a coastline and from what I've read, scholars actually think that these oral traditions retain possibly a memory of the end of the last ice age and the rise of the sea levels six or 10 or even 12,000 years ago. But this idea that these stories um, in the Mesopotamian versions, but also here in Australia, somehow retain an actual memory of local flooding, of transformative flooding, is, is really interesting. You also have to take into consideration how people uh, made their dwellings in those times. In Mesopotamia, it was mud and straw. Those were the basic elements. If you have a flood, you easily, very easily lose your home. So it just melts in the in the flood. But the Gilgamesh, part of Gilgamesh is about the flood. And the interesting thing is that In Babylon, uh, Gilgamesh goes on this search for, today we would say for meaning. In life, he realizes that he is mortal and that he will die. And he starts on a journey, you know, to find Utnapishtim, who is the hero, the Babylonian hero who survived the flood and to whom the gods granted eternal life. And that is where the flood story comes in Gilgamesh. And we find then, you know, a similar story in the Bible with Noah. So this is uh, certainly the the biblical authors transformed the story to fit their own uh, purposes in Gilgamesh. uh, Why the flood happened, it's not sin. It's not because people were sinful. It simply happened, or in some version, because the gods were unhappy. People were too noisy again. So they decided to kill them all. So these are obviously stories that are passed on. The biblical version is the most famous, but we see in them that the sea, oceans, and those big waters 
have always been a source of insecurity. You know, there is this trepidation about the sea, but it also, uh, from those waters, something new can be born. In the case of the Babylonian myth, we have this ideal of uh, being granted immortal life, but in the Bible there is the new covenant with people that is established that cannot be broken. God promises to people that he will never again bring such flood. Again, we come to that symbolism of the sea, kind of contradictory symbolism that is both dangerous, but it is also transformative in a positive sense. Dr. Tamara Prozik from the Centre for Religious Studies at Monash University on ancient Mesopotamian mythologies of the sea. I'm Meredith Lake, and today on Soul Search, we're thinking about the sea because on the 12th of July, some churches mark Sea Sunday in support of sailors and those who minister to them. But speaking of the sea as a place that's both threatening and transformative, one of the most famous biblical stories to explore these ideas is Jonah and the giant fish. As the story goes, God gives Jonah the task of carrying a message to the city of Nineveh. But Jonah doesn't want to do it, so he runs away by ship. This provokes a huge storm that endangers the lives of the seafarers he's with. Jonah tells the sailors to throw him overboard to save them and perhaps to appease God. When they do, the storm calms down and Jonah sinks into the deep. Here's a short extract read by Eugene Guilforder. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and thou didst hear my voice, for thou didst cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood was round about me. All thy waves and thy billows passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out from thy presence. How shall I again look upon thy holy temple? The waters closed in over me, the deep was round about me, Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet thou didst bring up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee, into thy holy temple, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their true loyalty, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to thee what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance, 
belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. On RN, that's Eugene Gilfeder, reading from the Book of Jonah, which I'm discussing with Tamara Prozik from Monash University. She's an expert on ancient mythology, including the many old stories of monsters from the deep. Well, again, everything starts with Tiamat, the oldest sea monster. Uh, she comes as this composite animal, but she also some representations are that she has this uh, snaky appearance. And then we have that same uh, sea monster, for example, appearing in some Canaanite myths, which are very important because some of the biblical stories and representations of Yahweh are based on those Canaanite myths. Ugarit was a city on the Mediterranean coast on the Syrian coast, the city now it's called Ras Shamra. It was a very important port city, and there, there was a library of you know tablets found. We encounter Yam, the meaning of which is sea, and Yam has a helper called Lotan, and Lotan has this snaky appearance. That then gets into the Bible as the Leviathan. Uh, so Yahweh defeats Leviathan. That's this. in one of the Psalms, isn't it? And there's a Leviathan also in the book of Job. People don't always yes. notice the sea monsters in the Bible, but they crop up quite a few times. Well, the Bible in Genesis, you have the creation of the sea, or rather the creation of, of water, division of sky and water and then God gathered all the water in one place and called it sea. So that's a strange thing in Genesis that we don't have a creation of fresh water, but actually we have a creation of the seas. And then all the sea monsters also get created. So the sea has this mysteriousness about it. The sea is always, always has this potential to produce these monsters. And we see that in these Canaanite myths and then in the Bible through the Leviathan, and it gets transferred and transmitted to other cultures or the other cultures also produce their own myths about the mysteriousness of the sea and the sea monsters that crop up from the sea. So Kraken in Norse mythology and many other sea monsters. Even in the text that's been canonized as the Bible, we see a reinterpretation of some of these stories happening. In the Christian New Testament, the story of Jonah inside the whale is cited as a sign or a symbol of Jesus' own death and entombment and resurrection. And then in another part of the New Testament, the flood connected to Noah is interpreted as a sign of baptism, this idea of being saved through water. And the ark, I mean, in Christian theology, has often been seen as a type 
of the church. And these ideas really get loaded up and reshaped with century after century of reflection and tradition. And then I think with the expansion of Christianity as a global religion, partly in step with the expansion of European empires, these stories, you know, they travel way beyond their sources in ancient West Asia, as we've discussed, to many other parts of the world. And Tamara, you've thought a lot about mythology and its dynamics now, but what kinds of stories did you grow up with? What was your exposure to these stories in early childhood? <laughs> well, first of all, I grew up in a, in a country which didn't have really much exposure to religion. I grew up in a socialist country, so biblical stories were for us more or less stories on the same level as, let's say, Brothers Grimm stories. So my exposure to stories about the sea was just when I was going to the Adriatic coast and encountering uh, the sea there. You know, the Adriatic Sea is a very small sea in comparison, let's say, to Australia and the ocean. Uh, that was really more like a lake. So all <laughs> all the stories there that I remember about the sea would be if by an accident a shark <laughs> shark wandered into the Adriatic, and then that would be remembered for years and years and years. It so must have it, been quite a shock then migrating to Australia. It was a shock. I did see the Mediterranean, but when I've I've never seen an ocean before. I remember the first time I went to Queensland, I was standing on the, you know, on the sandy beach, and I was looking across the the this expanse of just water, and I remember feeling really frightened because I thought, ah. There is nothing from here to America, just this sea, this deep, deep, dark sea and nothing else. And that was really frightening. Here in Victoria, I have a different feeling. There is Tasmania, you know, somewhere down at the bottom. Uh, so it's much, much easier to stand on the beach. I don't know, for me, it's a very, very different feeling when you grow up next to a small sea and when you grow up next to, to the ocean. The terror of the sea, and yet for some people its transformative potential is obviously a huge theme in, in literature, post-biblical literature and fiction. Where was your introduction to thinking about mythology and to these ancient stories of the sea? Well, as a child, I read a lot of, uh, I certainly read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I read Moby Dick. My fascination with mythology in general comes from actually, I think, liking stories. I loved fairy tales. I remember having whole edition of fairy tales from different countries. And that is where my fascination with stories come. But certainly when it comes to the sea, 
I think I'm more interested in uh, the symbolism of waters as such, because water really crops up very often as this primeval element of creation. And I think that is not just a reflection on uh, the necessity of water to grow things, but I also think that it's related to the womb and the child that actually, until the baby is born, it floats in water in the in mother's womb. And I think ancient people realized that there is this connection between creation and water, not just in a literal sense, but in this deeper sense. Dr. Tamara Prozik, a senior lecturer at the Centre for Religious Studies at Monash University, where she teaches on myth and meaning in ancient worlds. And if reading more about Mesopotamian mythology is your kind of lockdown project, you'll find a few links on the Soul Search website, as well as some more information about all my guests today, who've helped us mark what in many churches is celebrated as Sea Sunday. Remember, you can catch up on Soul Search by podcast with the ABC Listen app. And you can listen to RN anytime with your digital assistant. Just tell it to play ABC Radio National. Soul Search is produced by Mariam Shahab. And thanks also to Jeff Wood for remembering those gems in the archives. The sound engineer today was Simon Branthwaite. My name's Meredith Lake. And next time on the show, I'll be talking faith with two archbishops. Until then, go well and keep thinking big with RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.